The Book Thingo podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and parenthood. Anna Cowan is my guest for episode 75, recorded via Skype well before we all had to start social distancing. Book Thingo would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this episode was made, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Australia's Indigenous people to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the Book Thingo Podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thingo Podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thingo Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. For a while now, I've been trying to drag Gabby and Rudy into discussions about motherhood in the romance genre, but they've both been incredibly rude and uncooperative. So I decided to ditch them and speak to the much kinder and much more thoughtful Anna Cowan. Not only is Anna an incredible author whose subversive taboo novel Untamed challenged a beloved historical romance trope, she's also someone who has been thinking about how parenthood has affected her own work. What follows is a very candid chat, with the occasional chime in from Rudy, who was helping with the recording because she's a control freak. You can find information on the titles and authors we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 75. And if you're on Twitter, you can live tweet while listening to the show using the hashtag BTPod. Nice to talk to you ever so briefly, Rudy. <laughs> nice to Your talk voice to you too. Ended up in my kids' listen app, and I was like, "That's Rudy!" <laughs> oh, oh my god, really? Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. I'm still getting used to people having heard little yarns. Like it's not, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so, that's so nice. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to turn my microphone off. <laughs> it's been almost seven years, I think, since <laughs> Untamed was published. Um, Maybe I can get you to just summarize the plot of the book for people who maybe haven't read it or because as you know, my memory isn't the best. (laughs) Okay, so the Duke of Darlington, who's a very fluid, brilliant, tortured character, finds himself needing to hide away from London. So he goes to the countryside dressed as a woman in a beautiful 18th century style with the wigs and the massive gowns. And there he lives with a woman, Catherine, who is a bit of a hard ass. She has survived on very little money and kept her family afloat and finds him an annoyance. Um, But then just tucked away in the countryside, they fall in love. And then Catherine needs to find a way to come back to London and be on a footing where she can claim him. When you were writing Untamed and when it was published, did you have a sense of how incredibly unique it was and how unique it was to have a cross-dressing hero? I really didn't at all, I don't think. And it's funny, I feel like it's only kind of now that I can look back and really understand how, I don't know if ahead of its time is quite right, but like how outside of the genre it was in a few ways at the time. 
Because at the time, I just wrote it very naively. I mean, the first draft of Untamed is hilarious. It's so, there are like five books in one and they're all completely crazy. So I think I just wrote it from this really naive, joyful place and was like, this book really, like this story really appeals to me. And that was it. And then I just sent it out into the world in that way. And did you realise as you were writing it, how much of a subversion, not just the cross-dressing Duke was, but you know, elements of your plot, the fact that it, it was exploring queer identity in a very traditionally set, in a very traditional setting for a romance. Like, I guess what I really want to ask you is, when you were writing it, did you realise how different it was going to be? I think I had a sense while I was doing the final draft that it was unlike many other romances but I think it's kind of hard to judge because you always want your own work to be unique and so I think it's how I I had a sense about it but I didn't know if that was just my internal sense about it so then yeah seeing the reactions it was like yeah I don't know that I expected it to be received quite how it was I'm gonna jump in right now because Kat keeps missing the question that I want her to ask (laughs) I keep my, paraphrasing my, it and we like just read I'm out like, the question. This is not what I wrote. Um, <laughs> Kat never lets me sit in on her interviews, and this is why. Um, <laughs> I think one aspect of it all is that it's not just it's not just that it's different to see the hero cross dressing. Like every aspect of gender roles that we're kind of used to seeing, and particularly seven years ago that we were seeing in historical romance kind of got flipped and I'm curious about why you think it doesn't happen more often yeah I think I'm gonna answer this in a kind of roundabout way which I'll begin by saying I started doing therapy last year, (laughs) which is new and exciting and terrifying and amazing. Um, And I've found it very interesting to link um, writing to these powerful internal stories that have a lot of meaning for people. And I think particularly romance of all the genres uses those powerful internal stories and the images that we give to um, the relationships and the power structures that are most meaningful to us. And so I think in romance, the gender roles that characters play, they have a presence beyond the actual character. And I think for a lot of readers who love a het romance, the harder you can lean into masculine, feminine, the more interesting it will be to them, the more they will feel the feelings. So I can't really answer for other writers, but for me, I think the reason I was exploring that in Untamed in, as I said, a very naive way, and this is what I'm exploring in this book in a much more conscious way, is when you put a person into the power structure of a gender that they're not um, ascribed. I just find that incredibly interesting. And I think that's sort of where my own gender queerness kind of lies and just not necessarily in being non-binary 
but in thinking about how the power structures of gender are ascribed to a gender identity and how you can fuck with that, basically. Yeah, so I think I was leaning into an internal interest of mine in Untamed without quite realising it. I mean, it's so funny to me now, I look back on it, there's a scene towards the end of the book, spoilers, sorry, seven years later, towards the end of the book, Catherine turns up at a London ball wearing trousers and a coat. And it's so funny that there was a lot of interest and discussion around the Duke wearing a dress, being this gender fluid character. And even I didn't at all realise that Catherine was actually also such a gender fluid character. So, so much of it really was unconscious at that time. So the most obvious, but probably the most difficult question is, is there a second book in the works? There are so many books in the works, oh, Kat. Awesome. Even That's so good to hear as a reader, <laughs> but it's probably um, torturing you as a writer. Oh, it's so painful. I, at one point, and this is a few years ago even, I sat down and counted and there were 13 books I could sit down and start the next day, like developed enough that I could sit down and start writing it. (laughs) Um, Yes, so I've had so much thinking time and so little writing time, but um, I'm getting more and more writing time now and I'm working on a book at the moment that I'm like, two-thirds of the way through maybe. Uh, So is it still going to be romance or are you sort of broadening your literary genre horizons? No, it's definitely romance. Oh, thank uh, God. (laughs) (laughs) If you had said crime fiction, I would have stayed silent, but I would have given Rudy an eye roll. (laughs) No, absolutely romance, like turned up to 11. I think I'm actually writing the book that's even more extra than Untamed. Yeah, it's an absolute joy to write. (laughs) So when I say series, it's like in the sense of a romance series where there are three books that are connected by a family connection, but they will all be standalone. Without, I guess, pressuring you to give anything away about these books, how similar or different do you feel they are to Untamed? I think this is definitely of the Untamed category. I'm so excited. You can't even tell. (laughs) It will not be a book that people will have mild feelings about, I don't think. When you wrote Untamed, a lot of these ideas came out sort of subconsciously. Now that you're doing it consciously, is it harder or easier? Kind of a bit of both. I think it's easier but more confronting. (laughs) So that's one of the reasons why I love your writing. I actually love reading your blog because your blog is also, it's quite reflective. So the quote from your blog is this. It sort of made me catch my breath to write something so exposed, which I really love. And I guess as a reader, it feels to me that reading Untamed, I could feel you taking risks in your writing. Mm. Um, When you, I guess when the book goes out into the world and it's now in other people's hands to interpret, to love and to, you know, have mixed conversations and feelings about, how does that feel to you as an author? Oh, yes, so difficult to begin with. Everyone feels very differently, of course. For me, I think there's a period of kind of growing a skin with the project where initially there's just like nothing between me and what people have to say about it and I can't distance myself from the book. Yeah, over time that definitely disappears and I'm more just amazed to see people all over the world talking about this thing I created and 
just so delighted that people are still getting enjoyment from reading it. I mean, I occasionally dip into it and find myself just reading pages and pages. I'm like, yeah, I really wrote. <laughs> I wrote the book I wanted to read. It's so funny. <laughs> I was actually, one of the questions that I was going to ask is, um, do you go back to your writing and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I wrote this? Either in a, I can't believe I was brave enough to write it or I can't believe that these words actually came out of my, <laughs> my work. Yeah, definitely. It, it sometimes reminds me of when I studied in Berlin for a year and I look back at the essays I wrote in German, just like 12 pages of, you know, critical thinking in German. I'm like, who on earth wrote this? This is crazy. Um, and I do think of that sometimes when I read my writing, it's just like where it's almost like being in a dream and then you wake up from it and you've got the words. Um, not, not that it's easy like that at all. <laughs> Has the experience of, so that experience of publishing your first book and getting feedback from it, how is that informing the way that you write now? Has it changed the way that you write or it's just something related but separate? I think probably when I started writing the next book after Untamed, kind of at the time, I was probably way more aware of how it might be received. And I think that might have, I don't know that I ever do pull my punches, but I have to like make myself write down what I'm thinking instead of not writing it down. <laughs> C.S. Picat and I have this rule that if something feels so embarrassing that you couldn't possibly write it down, you know that that's the thing you have to write down. <laughs> it's just like the opposite of the instinct around it is what you have to do. So I feel like I've gotten better at that with practice, but also I've just kind of for my mental health mostly and just how I want to be living at the moment, just deleted all my social media and I find that helps massively as well. Then I'm just sort of in my own head and in the world of the book and I'm not imagining, you know, what people on Twitter would say about it, which weirdly is something that I find myself doing. It's like so unrealistic and unproductive, but I do find those voices in my head. So, yeah, getting rid of social media was kind of like getting rid of these spaces outside myself I could go into, which I think is the beauty of social media. But I just reached a point where I was like, no, I just need to be just me and my body and that's it in the world. And that has really helped with my writing massively and my reading. I borrowed a stack of books at the library the other day. I just started this morning Sherry Thomas's Lady Sherlock series, which I haven't read yet. So excited to read them. So I was going to ask this towards the end of the podcast, but Gabby is a massive fan and wants to know your recommendations for queer romance books or authors. So I hadn't been reading so much until recently, but one of the first books I read when I really started reading again was Work For It by Talia Hibbert. Work For It, is that what it was called? <laughs> I think so. Rudy's nodding, so yes, she's yes, she's okay. an expert at Talia Hibbert books. <laughs> I absolutely loved that book. It was so emotional. They sort of, they hooked up halfway through the book and I was like, oh, it's going to just, all the tension's going to go out of the book. But it just got better and better from then. It was quite amazing. One of my favourite queer series is called Wine and Song by Eleanor Coz, K-O-S. Um, I don't know how widely known it is, but it's amazing. It's got a real Dom sub vibe, but 
I guess I should say like BDSM, often when I see it, I'm immediately turned off. I think like whips and bells and whistles aren't really my thing, but she's doing this power dynamic that's just so amazing. And it's just all about the power dynamic. Um, So I think currently there are maybe four or five books in the series, but the first one's called Songs We Know By Heart. And that's my favorite. It's amazing. Um, Autobiography by Christina Lauren. I'd sort of forgotten about that. I was going through my MM recently on my Kindle looking for reads and reread it. And it's so good. It just feels like falling in love. I don't even know how to explain it. I'm like, can't even see how they're doing it on the page, but it's so beautiful. So emotional. I just like felt like I was falling in love. Although small sidebar, she does that, um, bisexual rep in it where it's like it's not about the body parts it's about the person and I'm like that's fair enough but I really want some bisexual rep in there that's like it's really about the different body parts (laughs) like this one thing's really hot but also this other thing is super super hot small sidebar there um I guess to be honest most of the queer stuff I read is probably more in the fan fiction world do you have any uh, fan fiction worlds that are your favourites? Like pairings <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know the language, so I'm going to embarrass myself. <laughs> I'm okay, not going to try. At all time, OTP is Harry Draco. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like so perfect for me in every way. Um, and I've read probably most of the internet of Harry and Draco. Um, I got really into like hockey fandom at one point. Ah. Completely random. It just seems to have like quite sort of grown-up characters getting together, which I enjoyed reading at the time. Um, yeah, I am I feel like I'm going to have to think about this question a bit more. You know, um, Anna, a few years ago we were also talking about our mutual love for K-drama. So mm-hmm. I was curious to know if you're still watching K-drama and if you have any <laughs> recent favourites. So funny, Kat, that one, that one blog post. <laughs> the I blog post that I've never published. I'm so bad. <laughs> Um, I still do watch the occasional show, but I feel like I sort of like my love of K-drama burned bright and well, fairly long actually, but has kind of burnt out a bit. I guess it's just that thing where when you become extremely familiar with a genre's tropes and all the recurring actors and characters and um, you sort of become a lot more picky about what catches your interest. I did actually recently watch a sea drama that I really loved called The Untamed, which is on Netflix. And that's a, that is a queer romance, no kissing on screen because China, but um, really, really enjoyable. But also Uh, slightly ironic in the title. (laughs) Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, hey, Anna, we've kind of made some references to it, but there's a period of time, I guess, between when Untamed came out and now where it feels like you either took a break from writing or struggled to um, write productively. And I, when we were texting regarding this podcast, we had a conversation about um, the struggle to write when you are managing a family. So, I wondered if you if you had any thoughts about that now that you're kind of several years past the point where I guess it 
the hardest points of when that would have happened? Yeah, I have many thoughts about it. (laughs) After Untamed was published, shortly after that, I had my first kid. And I was very focused. I was like, you know, I'm going to do full-time care for four months um, and then start writing at that point just like one half day a week kind of thing, which I did. And I managed to write about 30,000 words of my next book. And then I fell pregnant again when my kid was nine months old. And I kept trying to keep writing and it just became so impossible, I guess, feeling sick and tired. And I reached a point where I resented being a mum because it was getting in the way of being a writer. And then I was like, hmm, (laughs) one of these things can give way and the other cannot. So I just gave up writing altogether at that point for a period, which was really the right decision to make at the time. And then that's just kind of been my constant experience since then is just this frustration at how little time I can actually take to do it. And I think that's partly to do with my process. I know there are a lot of amazing women who will, you know, write notes on their phone while they're breastfeeding or um, do voice to text while they're pushing the pram, you know. But for me, I really need to work within work hours and I need to know when those hours are going to be. And that's just the only way I can actually be productive. It, it's an interesting paradox to me, the the idea that raising children is one of the great accomplishments or achievements of being a woman. And I think actually you wrote a post that sort of mentions this as well. And yet to do that, we have to put aside a lot of our other goals that contribute to us feeling like the fully formed individuals that we are. And to some extent, it's also made worse by social expectations on women versus men. Mm. Did that, did you find that applying to you as well, given that writing, you know, is, can be done at home, that it's, you know, it's seen as, well, it can be seen as a skill or a job that you can easily fit into motherhood and parenthood because, you know, you've got flexible times, um, you can write theoretically anywhere, you know, while waiting Mm. for your kids to finish swimming classes or whatever. What was your experience like? Yeah, I really experienced motherhood and personal ambition being completely at odds with each other. And that was the biggest shock for me of becoming a mother was just I guess, the biological reality of motherhood, having a child kind of attached to you and feeding from you and not sleeping much and, you know, your brain shrinks 5% (laughs) in pregnancy and that's definitely what it felt like. I mean, even when my youngest was like two, I would find words coming out my mouth. I would like hear hear myself say it and just be like, that wasn't even remotely the word I meant to say. (laughs) I have no idea where that came from and definitely in a broader societal way the way I found my position as a mother you know you can work really hard to create different family structures 
and a different balance between partners. But I think you have to work really hard at it. That's what I realized. It was like, you can't just be like, we're going to do it differently because the whole of society is pushing you in one way. And so to do a different thing, you have to push back. It's not just doing the thing. And so just things like, you know, being the caregiver or doing the school run or packing the lunches, like even once the kids are out of the house more, there's all that other stuff. I feel like becoming a mother, you really go into the the unseen, unpaid labour. Um, and that's quite a powerful and upsetting experience. <laughs> We're like, wow, this is actually the labour that most of our culture even is based on not just a family culture, but, you know, broader culture. And it's just so unseen. It's it's such a full-on experience to actually go into that space. I think and undervalued yeah, as well to many extents. Oh, absolutely. There's that such weird dichotomy between motherhood being like held up in some way, but then being completely undervalued and seen as, yeah, just like an unskilled labour, I guess. So, I mean, this year, I feel like this is the year that I have organized a lot of writing time for myself and that really took me having a couple of epiphanies last year which in the nature of epiphanies were just extremely obvious things that I had to realize for myself one being I have the right to work full-time and the other being I don't have to tetris the kids schedules you know into those hours so that I can have those hours So I was really clear that I was going to have a conversation with my husband that was, you know, you're working full time this year. I'm working full time this year. Now let's figure out what we do with the kids. And that's been amazing. But I'm also so clear that it's not an accident. It's happened this year when they're both at school. (laughs) Like that's actually doable. There's Um, an age at which it becomes possible and an age where it's actually very difficult to do it all. Very difficult. I tried mid-year last year to figure out more hours for myself and it just was so, so impossible and like so disillusioning to try. So that's on the work side. So reading is often seen as more of a hobby or um, something you do in your leisure time. Did you find that in the early years of your children, did that change the way you read as well or what books you tended to read? Mm, yeah, I really couldn't read at all for the first maybe year even. I had pretty bad postnatal anxiety and just, yeah, the kind of concentration you need to sink into a book. I just didn't have at all. I think I definitely through that period just watched a lot more TV and really haven't been reading that much until more recently. Because I'm a little bit beyond that stage of motherhood and when I look back on it it really feels it feels like this fog lifts like I know it's a bit of a cliche but that's really what it feels like like you get your memory back I mean admittedly my memory is still not that good but at least I can remember some (laughs) stuff um you get your time back but also you 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 get more of yourself back where you feel like you now deserve the time that you're asking for to do Mm. things that you find interesting that may not necessarily be productive at all to anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I think that's actually been a bit of an awkward transition for me as well. Um, You know, becoming a mother was a difficult transition, but it's strange to step out of the very early childhood and 
and yeah, I feel like, so who am I without someone hanging on to me 24 hours a day? For me, it was like, what do I talk about now? Like for the last three years, all I've been talking about is like, uh, you know, you've been teaching toddlers to talk and everything is just centered around these young people, these tiny humans. And they're just Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what other people are talking about. Yeah. I'll never forget my grandmother telling me they were refugees from Czechoslovakia and they were living in Belgium when she had my dad. And um, she said the first ball she went to, she was so mortified because she was dancing with an ambassador or something. And she just had nothing to talk about but her baby. (laughs) It's just like, yeah. When uh, When I had my children, I was one of the first in my sort of friendship group. And I I kind of promised, you know, I won't inundate you with stories about my children. And you quickly realize, like, if I don't say anything about my children, I have nothing to contribute to the conversation. And it wasn't until they had their own children that they were like, oh, I'm really sorry that I'm talking about my kids again. And then because I'd already been there, I could go, you know what, that's fine. I totally understand. (laughs) Yeah, I have been thinking even more broadly, I guess, particularly within romance, where you know, it's predominantly women or non-binary people or queer people who could choose to have kids, and many of them do, and just how that does fit into kind of our expectations about being a writer. At the recent Romance Writers of Australia conference, there were a couple of presenters who had brought their families because they'd come over from America, and two of the women did bring their children into their presentations with them and sort of invited them to be there in that space with them. And I feel like it, like it didn't quite work. It wasn't quite set up in a way that felt, you know, you're kind of there at a professional conference and it hadn't quite been set up in a way that was really working, but it did make me wonder about where that does fit into the professional sphere when so many of the people in this profession are likely to have kids. And, you know, I've, I've got friends who are established writers who have stepped back in order to parent their adult children more intensively. Or I was listening to Wicked Wallflowers recently. They interviewed, I think her name was Angelina M. Lopez, who's written this book about a female billionaire, Lush Money. Definitely looking forward to reading it. And she was saying she didn't publish her first novel until 20 years after she'd started writing because she was at home with her children. So I'm just finding it interesting to kind of think about, I don't, I haven't encountered the conversation very much in romance circles and I just find it quite interesting. I'm curious to know if, for example, Romance Writers of Australia is meant to be a professional body that represents Australian writers of romance, but I'm curious to know whether there's enough exploration about the profession of romance writing, as opposed to just, you know, workshops on craft, workshops on specific, you know, this is how you plot a romantic suspense, or this is what life was like in um, Regency England. But kind of really inviting authors to talk about things things like what we've discussed around, you know, how do you manage writing when you've got all these other, this other unpaid labour these other expectations on your life that feels to me like um, romance writers share a lot more in common than than we we tend to talk about? I mean, they they do always offer 
workshops that are more about, I guess, probably more about the business side. But at this conference, there were a few like mental health and writing workshops, which I thought was very timely and very good idea. I guess because I have been putting so much work into how I personally work, I didn't feel like I needed um, to attend those. But I think there's still more work to do in in terms of writers coming together in Australia and figuring out how to really um, share knowledge that helps in those ways. Um, I have recently been meeting with some Melbourne writers to just really try and pull some knowledge and, you know, just figure out what are the actions we can take within the publishing process that will help us and that kind of thing. And that's been extraordinary, just feeling like we are sharing that knowledge with each other and, um, you know, dividing tasks that might seem impossible just by yourself. And a lot has changed since Untamed came out. So when Untamed came out, it uh, was published through Destiny. And I think of that time as sort of the golden era for romance communities in Australia, where we had, I think we had three imprints that were romance Mm. imprints that were locally um, acquired and published. Mm. Uh, And then seven years down the track, I think only Escape has survived out of all those imprints. Um, But it feels like the opportunities for original Australian romance that doesn't fit into the mould of what those imprints might be looking for feels like the opportunity to get those works published is probably um, better now like the opportunity to find audiences for those works seems to be a little bit easier now with social media. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's why a lot of those works will be self-published, I suppose. You mentioned that you're, did you say two thirds of the way into the first book in a romance series? Mm -hmm. Would it be pushing my luck if I ask you to describe briefly what it might be about? (laughs) Um, you don't have to if you don't want to but like I will describe some of it there's like um, (laughs) the main part of it because I'm still writing it I'm just going to hold that close but as I said three books connected by family ties and also by two rival political houses um, or families set in a slightly alternate version of history to allow for certain aspects of the story, which has been so delightful to write. I feel like my writing kind of quite obviously heads in that direction anyway, not in the sense of no queer people lived in history, but in the sense of using history more as a a kind of landscape to investigate ideas that interest me. Um, and the three romances are lesbian romances with some sort of gender queerness in them. So intrigued. Mm. I slightly regret asking because now I just want more details. I came up with the concept, as I was saying, this other novel I wanted to write just didn't feel like it fit in the small pockets of time I had. So I came up with a whole new concept where I was like, okay, I'm going to write three novellas that are linked that I can write quickly Mm. They won't take me too long. I can self-publish them so it can be something that's, you know, happening and creating some energy for me. And then 
by the time I was like 30,000 words in (laughs) and, you know, they'd only just come to an arrangement between them, the two characters, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is a novel. Never mind. (laughs) So if you're setting it in a slightly alternative historical universe, is there something in particular about a historical setting that you love? Like what is it that draws you to write romances set in history? I've thought about this quite a bit and not really come up with any great answers, but I think it does slightly take on that fantastical feeling a bit where it's just a bit removed from my experience of living now. So you can make some of the structures of the society just more rigid and more obvious. You can like kill someone off without it being too big of a drama, you know. That's Um, always a good consideration. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But is it to do with tension, character tension, narrative tension, and then the external tensions that help bring the romance to the fore? Because I know this is one of the things that you and C.S. Pacat have written about. I think it is, yeah. It's, It's being able to create a more rigid set of society codes so you can clearly draw the line of where the taboo is and then break the taboo, basically. Whereas I feel like I very much feel that in 200 years, people are going to look back and really clearly see all the restrictions we have on us. But that's not so clear to me now living in this world, whereas looking back in a slightly fantastical way into history, it seems clear where the social lines were drawn. So it is It is very close to actual Regency and it feels like a Regency romance. There are just some elements of it where I've taken a bit of licence. And then before we officially end the interview, are there any other titles that you wanted to add in your recommendations list? Um, well, I just read The Flat Share by Beth O'Leary. Oh, yes. I really liked it. It was yeah, I mean, the premise is an absolute killer. It's like really carries you pretty far into the book. The premise being a young woman in London needs an extremely cheap rental. And so she rents the flat of a night nurse in a hospice. And so he has the bed during the day and she has it during the night and they never meet, but they start leaving each other notes and food and and they both have other sort of big things happening in their lives where they start to be able to support each other in those things. And I thought halfway through the book, I was like, oh, no, she's going to do that really annoying thing where they don't meet till the last page. <laughs> but, no, she didn't. It's a great book. I did. I enjoyed that book. I think I found it a little bit slow in the beginning. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's where just the premise kind of yeah, carried yeah. through. But it, yeah, it was, it was a cute enough premise that I was like, okay, I'm going to keep reading because this is something different. But also I could see that being made into a really fun film. Oh, for sure. Yeah. What else? Ah, so In Other Lands by Sarah Rhys Brennan, which was the last book that kept me up reading till like three in the morning. And my sister-in-law texted me the next day to say my 12-year-old niece had also been up reading till three in the morning, the same book. It's kind of a parody of The Boy Wizard Goes to the Magical Land, but it does that amazing parody thing of also being an amazing example of the thing it's a parody of. So it's also just this great fantasy novel. And on Sarah Reese Brennan, 
she's actually writing the tie-in novel for C.S. Picat's Fence series, which is a comic book series. So Sarah Reese Brennan's writing a novel of that, which comes out next year. And I've read the manuscript and it is just so charming and funny and emotional, like all her books are. So that will be a great read when it comes out. Oh, I've been, because I've been listening to the Fated Mates podcast, I ended up picking up Immortals After Dark where I'd left off oh. the credit. Um, where, where had you gotten up to? I had actually, it's kind of hilarious. I'd read all the way up to Lothair and then stopped just before Lothair. <laughs> so going back, I got to start with Lothair, which was extremely enjoyable. I really enjoyed reading those. And did you remember, so my problem with going back into series, even a series that is still ongoing when the next book comes out is I can't remember what happened before. Did you find that challenging? Because that's quite a long uh, series. Yeah, I did go back and read, I think, the two books before Lothair. But I kind of, I'd been listening to most of the episodes of the podcast and oh, yeah. I'm I'm pretty happy to just have a vague enough sense of the storyline. It's like if I dip in to just watch a TV show over my husband's shoulder and he feels the need to stop and explain everything that's happening. <laughs> no, I'm happy to just pick it up from context. Like, that's fine. And lastly, in books that aren't out yet, so this one's next year as well, is a book called She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker-Chan, another Melbourne writer. And this book is a, a genderqueer Chinese historical. It's just so good. I, I don't cry when I read books, and I cried <laughs> when I read this book. Um, and the ways it breaks down sort of trans identity and just gender queerness. I know, it's just doing it in so many interesting ways, all in the one book. And it's so emotional and great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us at the Book Thingo podcast. Such a delight, Kat. Honestly, well, the reason I texted you is because I just started listening to your entire podcast and I was like, this podcast is amazing. Oh, thank you. It's so, so enjoyable. Thank you. And uh, let me just say it's 99.9% .9 the work of Rudy. <laughs> Without her editing <laughs> skills, we would be nowhere. <laughs> um, I, I'm back again. I don't know if you've gotten up to or maybe caught the episode where I was really rude to Kat about not wanting to talk about motherhood. <laughs> Isn't that every episode that we're together? <laughs> no, that she tried to have a conversation with Gabby and I about motherhood and I told her it was boring. And, <laughs> um, and number one, I take that back because, like, I now realise that I was deeply It was just me. <laughs> no, like, it's a, it's a valuable conversation to be having and particularly for a show like ours it's part of the difficulty of motherhood that it is kind of boring when you're not in it it is boring. Well, it's boring even when you're in it to be quite honest <laughs> yeah it's so extremely meaningful and extremely boring at yeah. the same time I think there was this amazing line in the Witcher series where this woman's looking at her baby and she's like you hold all the meaning of the world shame you're so boring <laughs> Um, so I think that is part of the difficulty of talking about it. And also it's interesting to me that so many of the mothers or parents who write romance 
cannot stand kids in books, you know, myself included. Ah, I'm not particularly drawn to kids in books at all. Well, that was that was actually something I was going to ask you about. Like, is there a way of making kids in books interesting? (laughs) I like kids in books. (laughs) Oh, I think there absolutely is. And some people write them incredibly well. I I always love like a cranky kid. (laughs) I think when when authors write them in an idealised way, then it's irritating. Mm -hmm. I think when the kid character actually subverts the expectations for a kid without doing it in a very obvious way, then... I find it more bearable. But actually, I do love kids in fiction, so I'm not really. I think part of it for me as well is um, the feelings you have for a kid are so intense that they kind of eat into the feelings between the romantic partners. Mm, maybe. Like it's a really, it's a different construction of feelings and relationships than when you're just writing two people being intensely attracted to each other. Kat, what's your low so, conflict Anna, question? I've been, because I haven't published the last podcast, I'll give a bit of context. So I've been annoying Rudy by calling low conflict books women's fiction. <laughs> 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 but um, I was rereading your blog post. Actually, yeah. I think it was Kat's post on your blog. And um, I think my conclusion my, keeps changing, but I think my current position is that there's just not enough tension in the low conflict books. And I I get that the point of a low conflict book is some people just don't want that much tension in their books, but then I just find it really boring. Yeah. I, I don't understand loving a low conflict book because they just don't hold my attention and I kind of love as much drama and emotion as possible, but there do seem to be people who really enjoy them and, um, who just find it so beautiful to be in a world with very little conflict. I I don't, I think I'm on Rudy's side in this though. I wouldn't call that women's fiction. (laughs) Now that I'm vindicated, I think we're we're good to go. (laughs) That's all for this episode. Huge thanks to our amazing audio producer, Rudy Bremer, who volunteers her time to make us all sound good. You can find the show notes for episode 75 at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or just reach out and let us know by using the hashtag BTPod on Twitter or Instagram. And just a quick note, thanks to my impeccable timing, we've managed to relaunch in the midst of a pandemic. We appreciate your patience as we try and work around isolation policies and hope that you and your people are staying safe. In the next episode, Gabby and Rudy discover a new social platform, Goodreads. In the meantime, please visit us at bookthingo.com.au and have a fabulous fortnight of reading. My goal in life, it's not difficult to achieve, but Mm -hmm. it's to make Gabby cry. Um, (laughs) She's honestly the most...